Let's come before our Lord God in prayer. Oh, holy God, we, your people, have gathered here together in the praise and worship of your holy name, for your name is to be praised and worshiped and adored above and before all other names. For you are holy, you are righteous, you are majestic, you are from eternity and for eternity true and eternal God. And all things exist because you have decreed for them to exist. Indeed, O Lord, in the very beginning you spoke and it was so. Out of nothing you have created the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. In six days you spoke and it was so. And indeed, O Lord, you created all things good. It's created to praise you and to glorify you. And you have appointed man. Created him also in your image, good. And yet a man whom you have set to govern over this creation as your steward has squandered the gifts and has rejected the task that you have given to him. Indeed, O oh Lord, we all through our forefathers, Adam and Eve, have turned away from you in sinfulness, rebelled against your authority, and chart our own path. Because of the wickedness of man, O oh Lord, this world has been subjected to groan under the impact of sin. And we feel it acutely day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, throughout the ages. We wonder how long, O oh Lord, until you will allow Christ Jesus to return on the clouds of heaven to make all things new. For indeed, Lord, that work of recreation is something that we earnestly desire. And we give thanks to you that we have a foretaste of that. Also Sunday by Sunday as we hear the proclamation of a word that speaks of recreation. And indeed, O Lord, by your Spirit, come into us, those who believe in Christ Jesus, that there is a new nature, a recreated work, begun in part. But we also readily confess before you that We struggle against our old natures. We contend with our brokenness, with the sinful reality. And we witness how, though we struggle with it, those who are unrepentant do not struggle, do not contend against their sinful natures, but give themselves over to their sinful passions. And so, O Lord, we live in a world that is broken by sin, a world that celebrates sin. And we can even be driven to despair and wonder how it is that we can remain faithful and true to your word when society around us would reject the righteousness and the holiness and the goodness that can be theirs in your word and living in accordance with your holy law. Indeed, O Lord, because identity is no longer found in serving you and following you and being created in your image and walking in your ways. Identity is found elsewhere. We ask of you, O Lord, to strengthen us and equip us to find our identity in Christ alone and not in the things of this world, not in the passions of the flesh. A grant that we may shine brightly as witnesses to our society as lost as it is in the darkness of sin. May you grant that this congregation as brothers and sisters may build each other up and encourage each other and that we do not view each other in light of our sins but that we may view each other in light of the grace that is ours by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Lord, grant that we can come alongside one another and encourage each other as we struggle against our sins. 
against our own sinful nature as well. That we do not look down upon each other for the differences that we may experience. And that we may encourage each other, build each other up, seeking to turn away from wickedness and to pursue what is right and pleasing in your eyes. For in your eyes, O oh Lord, every sin is condemnable. Every sin can only find its forgiveness in Christ Jesus and his blood, which we were blessed and privileged to sing of also this afternoon in the psalm selection. Lord, grant that we may view one another in light of the white robes of righteousness that are ours in Christ Jesus and not in light of the sins that still cling to us, even as we seek to put them to death and pursue righteousness. Grant, O Lord, that we may encourage each other unhindered, not only by one another, but also by society. For, Lord, we live in a, a land that is turning increasingly away from Christian values and towards pagan and secular values. We ask you to be with our province, Lord, now in election season. A grant that those men and women who are elected and appointed to the office of members of provincial parliament may recognize that their authority comes not not in the first place from the will of the people, but from you alone. Indeed, all authority is derived from you as the Lord God of heaven and earth. We also ask you to be with our federal government, Lord, be with our prime minister and his cabinet and with all the members of parliament that they may also recognize their authority is derived from your authority. Lord, grant that the gospel message may be proclaimed unhindered, Lord, and that those who are in the civil magistrate may recognize the value of the gospel and be willing to ensure that it's protected that it is enshrined and that it is recognized as something that is valuable to society. For Lord, it is a gospel that speaks of grace, a gospel that speaks of peace, a gospel that speaks of a way that walks in love, in joy, and in peace. For it comes from you, the Lord God, the one who gives life and gives it so abundantly. Grant, Lord, that we do not fixate upon the laws of a secular society, Lord, but that we may recognize that this too is passing away as the kingdom of heaven is ushered in, and that we may fix our energies first and foremost upon the gospel, the renewal of our own lives, and how that may also transform the lives of those around us. Bless us, therefore, this afternoon as we hear your word proclaimed, Lord, that we do not turn our thoughts to other distractions, Lord, but that we may be, remain fixated upon your word, that we may be strengthened and built up. Lord, bless us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, amen. Our song of preparation this afternoon, brothers and sisters, is Psalter number 10. We'll sing stanzas 1, 2, and 6.
Psalm 9 and 10 are frequently suggested that they could be the same psalm. They follow a similar structure as, for example, Psalm 119, wherein in a poetry they may begin each line with the different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. One of the arguments against making that point is that that a structure breaks down, especially in the latter half, in the Psalm 10 side of things. And there may be a theological explanation for that, for Psalm 10 speaks about especially mankind not acting in the way that he ought to act, as Psalm 8 would speak of it, or Psalm 1, but man acting in his wickedness, going by his own authority. And indeed, we witness that so much within our own society, how mankind does not acknowledge the authority of God, does not acknowledge the way in which he is to live. Also, in the 21st century, with regards to obedience to the seventh commandment. So we'll be considering what we believe and confess concerning that in Lord's Day 41. But in connection with that, I'd like to read together with you a portion from God's holy word. I invite you to turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can find this on page 100, or 1049 of the Pew Bibles. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have not You have no heed that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Thus far from God's holy word. Let's now turn to our confessional reading, Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism.
You can find this on page 892 in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal. Herein we have two questions and also their answers that speak about the seventh commandment. A commandment that apart from Christ we also would be utterly unable to follow. Indeed, we daily increase our debt. But in Christ Jesus we have the satisfaction of the law. And so the law is no longer a burden, a barrier to us. But it is a light to our paths, a way in which we may live in thankfulness. And so now the question is asked, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? And God's people respond that God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? And God's people respond, We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. This is what we believe and confess concerning the seventh commandment and the way we are to live in thankfulness before God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we've gathered once more to worship a holy God. A holy God who's created us with particular purpose. A holy God who calls us to live holy lives before Him, holy lives in everything that we say, that we think, and that we do. It applies to every element of our lives, including how we use our bodies. Knowing this truth, however, is something that our society is increasingly unwilling to recognize. And yet even as society shifts further and further away from our grounded reality and who God is and who He's created us to be, we are called to remain firm in that truth in what God has revealed to us. This week, having come to the seventh commandment in the catechism, we're reminded that any relations outside of holy marriage between one man and one woman is ultimately cursed by God. Now, with our identity in Christ, we're called to live for Him in body and soul, living in holiness and honor in every element. Also, with regards to our bodies. And while many in society would consider this to be restrictive, hateful, it still remains a calling that does indeed demonstrate the love of God. So this afternoon, beloved, let us take the time to consider a proper perspective on our bodies and how we are to use them with the following theme and points. Our holy God would have us use holy bodies in a holy manner. We'll consider three things. First, that our bodies were holy. Secondly, that our bodies 
are holy. Thirdly, that our bodies will be holy. Our holy God would have us use holy bodies in a holy manner. It was in the first place that our bodies were holy. Today, there's such a complete misunderstanding of the human body that whenever we speak on it, it's important that we are to remind ourselves of who we were actually created to be. It's so easy for us to forget that God didn't actually create us to sin, that he didn't instill in our hearts sinful desires, that death along with all the other sufferings and sorrows that have entered into this world, come to us not because of God, but because of sin. For indeed, this was not always the case. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, all that's in them, and he saw it was good, very good. That he created man and woman in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. And this, brothers and sisters, must be foundational also to our understanding of this commandment. As Christians, we recognize God's created us male and female, and that he adopts us to be his sons, his daughters. That we're all created in the image of God, the Lord, the good and just creator of life. That truth, brothers and sisters, means that our identity is to be found in Him, what He does for us, how we can respond with our whole lives. Because of that identity, it places sexuality into its proper perspective. Along with it, everything else into proper perspective. And so we may welcome, we may celebrate how God gives to us each different personalities. How we need one another as eyes and ears and mouths and feet, all different things in the one body. What we find interesting, what we do with our time, how we relate to one another, none of that is defined by our sexuality, real or imagined. It's defined by our Creator, a God who's unchanging, steadfast, and sure, as we heard this morning. God created us wholly to fear Him, to glorify Him in perfect obedience to His will. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the perspective that we are to present to the world. Just as Psalm 139 reminds us, God knows us more truly than anyone. He's the one who's created us and he's created us with purpose. Who we are, it's not, it's not defined by the world, it's not defined by society, it's not even defined by our own whims. And should we not give thanks for that? These things, they, they change on a whim either suddenly in a moment or, or gradually over time. The person we are today is different from the person we were a year ago or ten years ago and will certainly be different in the years to come. But the one thing that does remain constant is that we were created in the image of an unchanging creator who's given to us bodies to praise and glorify him. 
Indeed, mankind was set apart from the rest of the creation in that role of glorifying God as his image bearers. And in this, we know God created us as relational beings. He's created us to have a relationship in the first place with him. As Augustine once wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Likewise, the Westminster Shorter Catechism starts by stating the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Ecclesiastes, that book that speaks of vanity of vanities, of vanity of vanities, how everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, still concludes the end of the matter, all has been hurt. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. When God created man and woman, He gave to them this mandate to care for the world, to cultivate it, to subdue it. Day by day, He came to spend time with them in the garden. So, brothers and sisters, our identity, it cannot be found in the changing things. Things that change like our personalities, our jobs, our relationships. Our identity is to be found in that which does not change. Our identity is to be found in God. Well, that seems well and fine enough. Seems nice that we can package it up like that. Perhaps we could conclude the sermon here on that point. But what about living today? We're no longer in Eden. We live in a broken world that groans under sin. And perhaps we were originally created to male and female before the fall, but what about now? God has allowed some to exist with attractions that aren't heterosexual. What about people that feel they don't conform to this norm of male and female? Are we to condemn them to a lifetime of suffering because of their sexual orientation? So what do you think of someone who professes to be a Christian but has been deceived on what the Bible teaches concerning sexuality? There are Christians who take a postmodern approach to understanding the scriptures. There are those who attempt to devote their lives to following Christ, but do so while in a relationship that defies the will of Christ. And the desire to have the things of this world has clouded their judgment and prevents them from seeing the truth. Would you consider such a person to be saved? what does that say of your own life? Nearly all of you seated here today profess to be Christian. Other matters on which you have allowed yourself to be deceived on concerning the scriptures, on sexuality or on anything else? Have your desire to have the things of this world clouded your judgment and prevented you from seeing the truth? If you believe and confess that it is only by the grace of God that someone who experiences sexual attraction to someone besides a spouse and holy wedlock can be saved, is it not equally true of you who experience attraction to other sinful desires can only be saved 
and the grace of God. What sinful desires have you deceived yourself with? What passions fill your life? Is there a passion, a desire to serve the Lord in every moment? Do you long to put your body to use for the glory of God? Are the 168 hours of the week being used in a holy manner? If the activities of a gay man for a few hours in his bedroom are enough to condemn him for not properly trusting in Jesus, what do the activities you engage in for hundreds of hours each week and month say of your state before the Lord? As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So we turn again from how man would conduct himself to God. And so we know disregarding the will of God, that's not disregarding man, that's disregarding God. That's a serious charge, brothers and sisters. Those who believe receive God's Holy Spirit. His will for us today is holiness, living in accordance with His will. Each of us are to control our bodies in holiness and honor today. And that's easier said than done. After all, God sits enthroned with glory and holiness in heaven. We're here. We're on earth. We're surrounded by sin and death. And it's so remarkably easy for us to to just fool ourselves on that holy identity that, that we can place it into a box only to take it out on Sunday for church. That it's not actually applicable at school or at work, at the store or hanging out with friends. How can I have an identity in a, a, a being that is so distant as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler supreme of all creation? The scriptures remind us of God's grace. The catechism reminds us of the truths of that scripture, making it personal for us that we are body and soul temples that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell with us. Therefore, we're to keep ourselves pure and holy. We've been claimed by our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. It's His Spirit that would dwell in us. Is that not a beautiful reminder of that eternal comfort we have? Belonging, body, soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the only thing that doesn't change throughout your entire life? I am not my own. I belong. I belong entirely to the most generous and gentle and caring and loving and devoting person to ever walk the earth. I belong to someone who never changes, who's more ancient, more powerful, more awe-inspiring than any other being in the whole universe. I am in Him, and He in me, in Christ. I can overcome anything. In Christ, I can do all things. Christ may become my identity, for He's my all in all. Christ has bought me body and soul, and so I can rightfully say, I belong. My body also temple for his spirit and therefore everything else it it falls out of that mindset that means that all of my characteristics play into 
being a follower of Christ calls to be holy. I can be a passionate follower of Christ. I can be an artistic follower of Christ. I can be an athletic follower of Christ. Most importantly, I can be a spirit, fruit-producing follower of Christ. That means that right now, today even, my identity, your identity, if you believe in Jesus too, is one that can be described as loving, joyful, peaceful. These are its characteristics. It's an identity that approaches relationships with patience, with kindness, with goodness, not just to family or friends, but also to my bitter teacher, to my stubborn co-workers, to my arrogant boss. It's a holy calling. It exercises faithfulness to God's word, gentleness toward the self, self-control against desires even when I'm alone, even when there's nobody there to identify and judge me. A holy calling that is life-transforming according to all nine fruits of the Spirit. A life-transforming identity also means that there is change happening. Change means there's something you're changing from, something you're changing into. That's something you're changing from. Sin. Sinful nature. But it does seem to stick around, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? I'm a Christian, you think to yourself, but I'm not perfect. That sinfulness still there. So how can this spirit-filled, spirit-fruit-producing identity be mine? And so we may remember that the fruit of the Spirit, they characterize the identity and are not the identity itself. So I'll say that again. Our identity is to be found in that which does not change, not the fruit of the Spirit, but in God. That identity is in belonging to God and none of your characteristics can change the fact that He is fully paid for all of your sins with His precious blood. None of your characteristics can change the fact that he set you free from the tyranny of the devil. None of your characteristics can change the fact that you are being cared for by a heavenly father who loves you. That means the one constant in your life is Christ. The one unchanging element that defines who you are is Christ. The one person who impacts every aspect is Christ. You belong to him, you follow him. In weakness, yes, but in him you are today holy. This has its impact upon the tasks that you set out to do. You're to be a Christian hockey player, a Christian artist, a Christian musician. This impacts the jobs that you have. You're to be a Christian student, a Christian welder, a Christian therapist. It identifies when bad things happen too. You'll be Christian cancer patients, Christian students who've failed a semester, Christian drivers who've gotten into an accident, Christians bullied by others, Christian friends who've said the wrong thing or didn't say anything at all, Christians working through sickness and illness. 
None of these things can define you at your core. They're only part of your life. Now, some of them will be a part of your life until you die, and other parts will fade as time goes on. But what remains unchanging is your identity in Christ. I belong to Christ. In Christ, I can do all things and display that toward others as a son, as a daughter, Christian, as a friend hanging out with the guys, Christian, as a boyfriend or a girlfriend, Christian, as a Canadian citizen, Christian. Well, what now of the LGBTQ plus community? It's a question that's split church communities. You see, some church buildings display a rainbow with a sign saying, everyone welcome, and they're not using the rainbow in a covenantal sense. Society as a whole labels fundamental Christians as bigoted, homophobic. One time I asked my pre-confession class how they'd react to a gay couple walking through the doors in the back on Sunday morning. How should the church react? There's ever-increasing enmity between secular society and churches on this very topic. Well, what is it about this particular topic that's so polarizing? It's something that's enough to drive people away from churches. It's something that causes people having these thoughts and feelings to, to keep them to themselves for fear of judgment, fear of being ostracized. Something that causes Christians to feel isolated and alone. Is that the purpose of the church? Is that the message Christ has dispatched us to send? I'm not saying that we are to redefine marriage. I'm not saying what the LGBTQ community practices is okay. Indeed, churches that would compromise on this are breaking with the commands of Christ. He's very explicit in showing to us that sexuality as God created it is intended for one place only. Within marriage between a man and a woman. One place. That's very restricted. And we are to focus on how limiting that is. It's because sexuality is not what defines you. You're not defined by what you're attracted to, nor are you defined on how you would express your sexuality. Indeed, for a society that is supposedly tolerant, that's open to allowing you to define yourself as who you are, it's remarkably limiting, restrictive, in how it makes it all about this, all about sexuality. Our culture would say, you are your sexuality. That that's the real you. Feel free to express yourself however you desire, as long as you're not harming others. And now, should someone try to restrict that, to restrain that, to say that's not right or proper, all of a sudden it becomes an attack on the self, on the ego, on the person, on the identity Therefore, it's hate. We cannot concede this point, brothers and sisters. You are not defined by your sexuality. 
just follow its, that line of thinking in its own logic. Consider what implications it would have if that were true. What would it say about those who, who would like to express their sexuality but cannot? What does it say about the widow or the widower who has lost their loved one? Already mourning the one that they spent life together. And now, would this perspective say that because they've lost the way they express themselves sexually, they're no longer a complete person? That their identity has been compromised? And what about those who are unable to find someone else to express themselves together with? Those who are single. And push it further. Push it to its radical conclusion, to something that is barely even worth thinking about. What of those who cannot express their sexuality because the object of their affection cannot consent? Bestiality, pedophilia, necrophilia. Such a perspective, brothers and sisters, cannot be true. You cannot be defined by your sexuality. As Christians, we need to express to ourselves and to everyone around us that sexuality is not what defines us. Sexuality is not the be-all and end-all of existence. Perhaps you know that famous quote by Oscar Wilde, everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. We need to take a strong stance against that. Everything is not about that. Everything in the world is to the glory of God. We're to be holy in that calling. Everything's in our relationship with Him. We're holy, and one day when Christ returns, He will raise us up with glorious bodies, and we will live forever and ever on the new earth. And what will life be like on the new earth, brothers and sisters? Sexuality will be a thing of the past. Does that mean that our identities are lost? No. That's not what defines us. Even when Christ returns, our bodies will be holy. Indeed, this afternoon we read from 1 Thessalonians 4, a passage about living a life pleasing to God, about how each of us are to control our bodies in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. But we also continued reading right through to the end of the chapter. Paul spoke of the coming of the Lord. And indeed, the letter would continue in speaking on the day of the Lord. And at first glance, this might not seem so related to the seventh commandment. Now, Paul was addressing different things. But there is indeed a connection. There is a correlation here. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul was writing to a group of Christians who were concerned about those who didn't have their bodies anymore. Concerned about those who had passed away. Since their bodies were seeing decay, would that make them less than the living when Jesus Christ returned? And Paul assures to them that that's not the case. Just as Christ Jesus received his body again, so also through him the dead will receive their bodies again. When the Lord descends with a commanding cry and a resounding trumpet, the dead shall rise. 
All the saints will have their bodies and souls united to always be with the Lord. Body and soul holy in the worship of God. That's why the separation of body and soul at death is not a natural one. It's not something that we celebrate. And while we may draw significant comfort knowing that a loved one is resting with their Savior in heaven, we would still mourn the loss of life that was necessary because of sin. And that we would lay the decaying body to rest in the ground in the hope of resurrection, body and soul properly together on the last day. And that underscores a very high view of the physical body, does it not? Our bodies, they're not disgusting prisons we're to be freed from. They're beautifully crafted by God Almighty to His glory. We're to use them to that end. That even in the midst of a fallen world, even though our bodies are broken by sin, still we are to hold them in high regard. It's not without reason that the Apostle Paul spoke of holiness and the gift of the Spirit when confronting the Thessalonians about their sexual practices. And just as God has created all things good, so he's also at work to recreate all things good and perfect. One day the work of man will be complete as the Son of Man descends from heaven and makes all things new. Our bodies of death and decay will be transformed to be like his glorious resurrected body. And on that day, last day, our sexuality will have fulfilled its purpose. For we know that in the new Jerusalem there will not be marriage. After all, the very purpose of marriage to assist one another in the service to God in filling the earth and subduing it that task, that mandate, it will be completed. The number of God's children will be full, so reproduction will not find its place in the new Jerusalem. The task in subduing the earth and preparing it for God to dwell with man will also be complete. The Son of Man completes the work and establishes the throne of God in the new Jerusalem as he makes this world, this earth, new again. Our task on earth will be complete. Marriage will not be necessary to assist us in completing that completed task. And even should we receive a new task, will not be necessary for that one either. So it will not do us any benefit to discuss whether there will be gay or lesbian or transgender people in the New Jerusalem. After all, sexuality is not what identifies us. Our identity is in Christ. The only knowledge that we have about what our bodies will be like on the new earth is that they will be like Christ's glorious body. They will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, and we will praise and glorify God together as we live and reign together with Him, male and female. And people from all backgrounds who struggle against every sinful inclination under the sun, from blasphemy to thievery to adultery to murder, all washed clean in the precious blood of Jesus, wearing white robes of righteousness. 
homosexuality, transgenderism, it does not somehow stop the gospel of Christ Jesus from being the strongest force anyone in all the earth will ever contend with. They too, if they believe, if they accept, if they repent, Christ Jesus as their Savior, they will live forever. That impacts how we view obedience to the seventh commandment. It's why we may confess that we're purchased body and soul, not just soul. We may acknowledge that we belong body and soul to Christ and Jesus, using body and soul to glorify Him. With this high view of the body, we know that today also we may live for Him. We may use our bodies and how we obey the Lord in accordance with His will also in the seventh commandment. We do not need to be worried about a brother or sister seeking to obey this commandment also in a different way. Having homosexual lust is no more taboo than heterosexual lust. Both are to mortify the flesh. Both are to strive to flee sexual temptation and pursue what is righteous and holy. Both are to strive to obey God and to give to Him glory and honor and how their bodies are to be used. Both eagerly looking forward to the day when they will receive gloriously resurrected bodies to reign with Christ forever and ever. And in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, that identity, an unchanging identity, means there's fellowship. Fellowship within the communion of saints you won't experience anywhere else. The Christian community is better equipped than any other community to accept people, no matter their background, their history, or character. A fuller and richer identity with greater acceptance and greater love is to be found in the gospel of Jesus than on the streets of our cities on Pride March. There is no incessant searching for identity born by the whims of a hypersexualized society, but a grounded identity and the unchanging I am, that covenant faithful God. There's no contempt for the body, either of your own body, how it doesn't seem to match you, or the body of someone else but it is immense respect for that which was created in the image of God. There's no striving to one-up each other in feelings of, of, of oppression or confusion, but in the grace of Jesus, appreciation to that loving Savior who's experienced oppression far beyond what any man, woman, or child could ever imagine or bear. And he gives us strength to face each new day. It's his body of believers, the communion of saints, that may provide a wonderful community of brothers and sisters who are looking out for each other, loving each other, caring for one another. So much love and help and support and overabundance of God's love to be offered, grace to be poured out, relationships built and strengthened within such a community, a gathered together in one faith. 
Those relationships are so beautiful. Things to be cherished and nourished. I would speak now to the younger members of this congregation. If you do not have an older member here in your midst that you talk to on a regular basis, and I mean someone not from your blood family, I would encourage you to take the steps to do so. The comfort and the strength and the mentoring and the encouragement from someone who's been around the sun on this earth a few more times than you, it's a beautiful thing. Intergenerational relationships within the body of Christ are to be cherished and appreciated. Celebrate relationships within the body of Christ. And that does not mean that freely practicing sexuality outside that narrow confine of marriage is to be welcomed and celebrated by the church. Any church that displays the pride flag and condones relations outside of one man and one woman within holy wedlock does indeed run contrary to God's words. The Lord's quite clear that those who do not walk in the ways of sanctification were never justified at all. But in the same way, brothers and sisters, we do not zero in and make a bigger issue out of something than it truly is. For how much attention does a church give and ought the church give to someone who is an alcoholic? To a member who has committed adultery in the past? To someone who got into a fight while playing hockey? It's only in persistent, unrepentant, ongoing sin that we fear for someone's salvation. The alcoholic who never touches beer or wine again shouldn't be known in our community as an alcoholic. Should be known as a Christian. Accepted redemption. That adulterer or adulteress who abstains after their mistake and passion shouldn't be known by their sin. But as a Christian, accepted redemption. The guy with a temper who strives to never get a penalty again shouldn't be known as the hothead. But as a Christian, accepted redemption. Likewise, someone who comes out shouldn't be known, first of all, in that lens, regardless of whether they've committed an act or thought. Identity and sexuality, that's a worldly thing, brothers and sisters. Our identity is in Christ. Accepted redemption. And this is fellowship, communion that we're called to participate in, accepting our bodies as bodies from God. Christians who wonder to themselves about homosexuality or transgenderism, for there's a lot of confusion, brothers and sisters, and our society is not making this any easier. They do not need to experience or wonder about it alone. We're described as a body of Christ. Through, though many, we are one, sharing in the one loaf and cup of thanksgiving that points to the complete forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus alone. So it cannot be an alarming thing for someone in our community to admit to a struggle. It's to be understood in the same way that every other trial is understood, recognized, and contended with in the power of Christ. 
No distinction for us who are redeemed. The same gospel goes forth to all, earnest in its call to repent and believe in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Let us encourage one another to live in thankfulness, using these bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit to glorify God. Amen. Let's ask God a blessing upon our task. Dear Lord God, you've created us body and soul to honor you and to glorify you in all things. You created us, O Lord, to be stewards of this creation, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to develop it. Indeed, O Lord, it has been your plan that you would dwell in our midst, that you would be our God and we would be your people. But mankind has rejected that plan, O Lord. Man would turn away from you in sinful rebellion, would seek to be his own master, would seek to set his own ways, to live according to his own will, and conquer this earth for his own selfish ambition and vain conceit. But you are sovereign. You are eternal. You are unchanging. And it is your will that will be accomplished, not the will of man. That though this world groans under sin, what your purpose is going to be accomplished through that Son of Man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For you in your grace and in your mercy and your steadfast love and faithfulness have not condemned all mankind for that sinful rebellion. But you would redeem those whom you have chosen to live together with you forever and ever. Help us, O Lord God, to respond in thankfulness for that gospel one that speaks of Christ Jesus who has purchased us with his precious blood, body, and soul. A grant that we may more and more turn away from the sinful desires of the flesh and toward what is right and pure and holy. A grant that we may focus in upon what is right, what is pure, what is honorable, what is trustworthy. That we may fix our eyes upon Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, that we may seek to live in accordance with all of your commandments, all ten of them. Lord, help us to recognize that obedience to the seventh commandment is something that is to be expected from the beginning of our lives right through to the end. Lord, that we may recognize that sexuality is only to be practiced within the narrow confines of holy wedlock between one man and one woman. Lord, each one of us struggles with that in different ways. Those who are married, O oh Lord, a grant that they may keep themselves pure for their spouse, that they do not look lustfully after others, that they do not seek satisfaction for themselves selfishly elsewhere, but that they may give thanks to you and seek also the empty of themselves for their partner. Lord, be with those who are unmarried but would desire to be married, a grant that they may keep themselves pure as they seek a partner that you might give to them. Lord, that they may not give in to their sinful passions, looking on things perhaps virtually, Lord, but that they may keep themselves pure. And be with those who would keep themselves single throughout their lives. Lord, that they do not feel isolated or removed from within the communion of saints, Lord. For the norm for us is to be married. And yet there are those whom you have called and set to be single. 
I grant that they may use their singleness in a way that brings honor and glory to your holy name, uh, that they may uh, use the time that you give uh, for their brothers and sisters within the body of Christ, that they may see uh, the covenant children that you, you bestow also as those whom they have a responsibility to care for, to raise, and to instruct. And grant that those who are married may welcome the single members also and not treat them in a different manner. For, Lord, it is so easy to do so. I be with those, O Lord, who have recognized that they will not be married because their body does not have a desire for someone of the opposite sex. I grant, Lord, that this does not turn them away from Christ, that this does not harden themselves against you. Lord, I grant that they may seek to devote themselves also to you. Lord, if it is your will, I grant that that, sinful, that nature might be transformed. But if it is not your will, Lord, if that is to be a thorn in their side all the days of their life, I grant that they too may keep themselves pure and holy before you, eagerly awaiting the day of the resurrection of the dead, the day of life eternal. Be with those, Lord, who were married but are no longer married. I grant that they too may keep themselves pure and holy before you, that they do not become fixated upon the fact that their loved one is no longer with them, but that they may recognize that the life that you call them to live today and tomorrow and each day hereafter may still bring honor and glory to you as they seek to fulfill your mandates before us. And grant that we as a body of believers may remain firm and committed to your holy word, that we may raise up the children, your covenant children, in the fear of your name in accordance with your will and not our own or that of society. May you be with the fathers and mothers in our midst as they raise their sons and daughters, recognizing that they are in the first place the sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they will be heirs of eternal life if they cling by faith to Christ Jesus. That they are not raised in confusion, that they're not raised in isolation, but that open conversations about the struggles of the flesh can be had. And that children do not fear to speak to their parents, do not fear to speak to their mentors or to their elders or to others around them. But that they may seek assistance and help that they may walk in your ways, that we may build each other up as brothers and sisters in the one body, as an open and welcoming community, a communion of saints. Lord, truly open, truly welcome, truly loving, as only you can truly define it. And grant that we may remain committed to the truth of your word, that we do not compromise upon what is right and what is good, what truly leads to proper love and fellowship and acceptance of the body, namely the gospel of salvation, a gospel that speaks of a God who's created and a God who recreates and a God who will completely recreate on that final day. Grant that we may rejoice and be glad and speak of that gospel to all those around us. May this gospel be unhindered either by this congregation, by the undersheptors that you have placed here, or by the civil magistrate. Bless us, therefore, as we go from here, that your name may be honored and glorified. These things we lay before you in the name of Jesus Christ, who has bought us body and soul. Amen.